Hello and welcome to the podcast for the March 2012 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined once again by the editor of TLID, John McConnell. John, the usual exciting eclectic range of topics to discuss. Let's start with tuberculosis, specifically a study, and this is looking at if you like, a low-maintenance and easy diagnostic test for tuberculosis. Remind us why such a test is important. Well, TB is very hard to diagnose, and the tools that we use are the same as we've been using for over the past 100 years or more. So people look at sputum samples, um, they stain them uh, directly for the bug in sputum samples, or they try and grow up the bug uh, in culture, and that can take a couple of weeks. So diagnosis is slow and and inaccurate. Uh, So what we really need is some sort of bedside test, a a so-called point-of-care test, a dipstick-type test. Uh, And these sort of things are available for HIV, which has really speeded up the whole process of diagnosing HIV. So this is a promising-looking point-of-care test for tuberculosis. And just to be clear, the relevance of this test is in resource-poor settings, is it? Well, well, I think so. I mean, I think that's where the real issue is, where you have a high incidence of TB uh, and you want a cheap and rapid diagnosis so that you can get on with treating the disease. And so this study takes place amongst HIV-positive patients in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in fact, in South Africa. And what the authors have done is they've compared this point-of-care diagnostic test, which is called TB-LAM, where the LAM stands for lipoarabinomana, and that's an antigen produced by the tuberculosis bacteria. Uh, And this is a test which is a sort of dipstick-type test. It looks a bit like a litmus paper, uh, and you can dip it in urine, and uh, if a certain line shows up, then that's positive for TB. Uh, And they've compared this test with the sort of standard tests that we use with culture, with uh, sputum smear microbiology, and with the various uh, serological tests, including the so-called expert TB RIF test. Uh, And they've looked at the uh, sensitivity and specificity specificity of this test, particularly compared with culture, which is used as the gold standard in this particular context. Thanks, John, for that. And looking at the results, you can walk us through them and the implications of them. It looks looks encouraging in terms of reasonable sensitivity at around 66% and high specificity. Yes, so I, I think what we really have here is a test which can be used for screening. So you would probably, with this test, be able to exclude most genuinely negative patients using this test. Um, So it's a first-pass screening test. And in this study, where it was most effective in producing really useful results is where they combined the results of TB-LAM with sputum smear testing. And there, they were able to produce something which was actually quite comparable with culture results. But of course, the results of the TB-LAM are coming back in 30 minutes. You know, you're not waiting for days. It's coming back really quickly. Uh, The test was most useful in patients who had a low CD4 count. So these are all HIV positive patients and for some reason uh, the test was most useful in producing an accurate diagnosis in patients who had a low CD4 count. So is this test going to be used? Is it going to be applicable now? The comment authors offer a bit of caution, don't they? They are. They are suitably cautious, uh, and they point out that this sort of study really needs to be extended into other patients, patients who are not HIV positive, into children, and also, of course, into uh, lower prevalence settings. So it's it's a promising step along the way, is that we actually have a, a potentially useful point-of-care diagnostic test, uh, but I don't think it's quite ready yet to be rolled out into routine use uh, and to replace the sort of diagnostic methods which we've been using for the past hundred years.
staying in that part of the world, southern Africa or sub-Saharan Africa, um, an interesting trial looking at intermittent preventive therapy for malaria. Before we go into the details, what, what's the concept here of this intermittent therapy? Well, of course, uh, we all, if we are going to a malarious country, if we're coming from the West, from a country which doesn't have malaria, and we're going to a malarious country, uh, then we take prophylaxis against malaria to prevent us catching the disease. So why shouldn't that be used in the countries where malaria is endemic? Uh, and of course it is used in some contexts. So for example, it's used amongst pregnant women. So pregnant women have a, an increased risk of contracting malaria. Uh, and if they get uh, malaria during pregnancy, that can have severe consequences for themselves and for their unborn children. So preventive therapy is used in, in certain populations in endemic countries. Uh, and what the authors of this randomized trial, which has been done in Malawi, have attempted to do, uh, is they've attempted to extend so-called intermittent preventive therapy to children who've been in hospital uh, with severe malarial anemia. So these young children have a high risk of uh, readmittance, of reinfection and readmittance after they're discharged from hospital. So the authors have attempted to uh, limit the chances of severe disease reoccurring by giving the children prophylactic therapy against malaria in the two months after they've been discharged. And how did those children get on compared with those who were not given? Uh, well, again, the, the, the results are promising, but not perhaps absolutely conclusive. Uh, in the, the protective efficacy uh, against the endpoints of readmittance or all-cause mortality uh, was, was 31%. So they call that an absolute rate reduction or, uh, for those endpoints of 11.7 per 100 children. And of course, the, the effect was, um, I suppose this almost goes without saying, the effect was most pronounced uh, during the period, during the, the two months over which the children were receiving their drugs, uh, and then sort of waned uh, over the next six months, which is which I think you'd find would be um, uh, entirely, entirely predictable. Um, so there does seem to be a role for doing this amongst children. I mean, it looks like an effective intervention uh, to prevent young children from being readmitted uh, to hospital with this very severe and potentially fatal disease. But once again, this is something which we need to uh, extend into more populations, into different settings before it can be rolled out routinely. John, let's look at a review now. And this is really uh, looking back at the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, as it was. And uh, really, I suppose, John, it, it's a kind of practical look back, isn't it, in terms of trying to identify lessons learned from that, presumably should such an occurrence happen again. Yes, and specifically, this is about the drug treatment of, of the flu virus. So this was the first pandemic to have occurred uh, while we had uh, specific therapies uh, against flu. So we had these neuraminidase inhibitors, uh, of which the most frequently used was um, a drug called oseltamivir, um, or Tamiflu. And uh, this study reviews the frequency of Tamiflu-resistant H1N1 viruses during the pandemic and the lessons that can be learned from the surveillance of uh, resistance. And does the author have any key conclusions or recommendations? Well, I think some, some interesting data which they've accumulated. So, for example, there's a huge disparity between the number of samples that were tested in different places. So, for example, in the WHO Western Pacific region, there was well over 10,000 viral samples were tested uh, to look for resistance. Whereas if we go to the, the African region, only 140 samples, Southeast Asian region, only 47, uh, Eastern Mediterranean region, only 59 samples were tested. So, uh, to me, 
that shows that there's a huge diversity in the comprehensiveness of coverage in different parts of the world. Uh, and that could potentially have consequences in the event of a future pandemic. Because what we really want to know if another pandemic occurs, we want to know if resistance is emerging and we want to know it as quickly as possible. Because if drug resistance emerges uh, in the flu virus, then we may want to move on to a different treatment if a different treatment is available. Uh, or we may want to change our plans completely. Uh, so, for example, have more social distancing measures rather than rely on drug treatment. So surveillance does need to be comprehensive. Uh, and part of what this review shows is that surveillance is, is not comprehensive and does need to be extended more widely. Thanks, John. That's uh, an interesting review. And staying with flu... Um, a very interesting and readable editorial which sent uh, John scurrying off to a BBC television studio a few days ago. And this concerns H5N1, avian influenza. And of course, what hasn't happened and hopefully won't happen has been, you know, there have been many deaths from avian flu, but it hasn't spread as much as one might have feared. But still, theoretically, it could. But there's this whole debate going on about research into this area. And if it gets into the wrong hands, it becomes a bioterrorist threat. Just walk us through the argument here, John, because it's a good topic. It's a good topic. It's quite a complicated story. We've got this editorial and we've also got a news report that goes uh, with it, which uh, details the events in a, in a little bit more detail. But H5N1 has been around for a long time, for about 15 years or so. This is bird flu. There has been roughly 580 cases or so known worldwide. Uh, there's been about 344 deaths at the time that we wrote that, so that's a case fatality rate of about 60%. So so if this virus mutated into a form which spread easily from person to person, uh, we could be in real trouble. Uh, we could have a very, very severe pandemic indeed with a high mortality rate. Now, of course, there's no sign of that, that happening at the moment. There's really little or no evidence that the virus transmits from person to person. So what a couple of research teams have done is they've taken the H5N1 virus um, and they've bioengineered it. They've genetically mutated it to make it transmissible in a mammalian model of flu and that's the specific model is um, ferrets and uh, what they wanted to discover is what sort of changes what genetic changes would be necessary uh, in order to make the virus transmissible from person to person now as I say two research teams have done this they sent their results off to uh, nature and to uh, the journal Science, um, at which point a government um, group in the United States called the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity intervened. They heard about this, intervened, and basically said, uh, we don't want you to publish these results in, in full because they could be misused by uh, bioterrorists, by rogue governments, to deliberately create uh, dangerous flu viruses. So this whole topic has been the subject of much debate, much discussion. There was a WHO meeting meeting in Geneva just last week to discuss where to go next. Um, and that, in essence, is the, is the subject of our, our editorial and what our, what our bottom line would be on the subject of whether this material um, should be published in full or whether we should uh, attempt to uh, withhold uh, specific details of the research. And just to be clear, you're very clear in your bottom line that by having full transparency, that offsets any downfall of it getting possibly into the wrong hands. That is our line. Uh, and the reason I think that's right is because, uh, in effect, this research has been talked about for a while. Uh, it has been presented at meetings. So, if anything, I think it's it's too late to prevent the dissemination. The the cat, or in this specific case, the, the ferret, is, is very much out of the bag already. I knew you were um, going to say that. I wish I 
had to ask that question. <laughs> so I, I, I genuinely think that the safest thing to do uh, is to make the information freely available so that as many interested groups as possible can look out for what might be a dangerous virus. Um, I do, do not think it's possible now to prevent this information from, from getting into the hands uh, of people who might want to do us harm. Uh, and let's face it, creating a, a virus which will spread easily from person to person and have a high fatality rate uh, is not a particularly easy thing to do. Uh, there are not a lot of researchers capable of doing it uh, and certainly not a lot of research labs capable of doing it. Um, and the chances of sort of getting it right in the bioterrorist terms uh, are probably quite small. And I also think the nature itself uh, is producing how many millions of mutations every day in the flu virus. We just, we just don't know. Uh, and as we know nature is very good at producing its own pandemic viruses uh, so I would rather that the research community and the surveillance community was was forearmed with this information uh, than we tried to keep it hidden thank you very much indeed John it's a fascinating debate